for for praying by the way it's isaiah chapter 37 that we are in uh tonight we're in this four chapter uh narrative this historical section within uh the book of isaiah and if you remember as we've been uh going through starting probably a, a, a year and a quarter, a year and three months uh, ago, uh, smack dab in the middle of the book of Psalms. And, and you see all this beautiful poetry praising the Lord, the emotions that are going on, and then going to the book of Proverbs and, and you know, challenging the mind and learning wisdom for uh, today. And then the, you know, Ecclesiastes and Song of Solomon, which son are you under, the S-U-N or the S-O-N? And then now moving into the major prophets, uh, starting with the biggest of the major prophets, Isaiah himself. And Isaiah, of course, he starts in the majesty of God, who he is, the very throne room of God himself, saying, woe is me. I, I am a man undone amongst the people who sin, who are liars, stiff-necked, hard-hearted, and coming face to the face uh, with the holy, 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 majestic God who created everything. And then learning in chapters 7 and 9 that that same God is going to come to earth. Emmanuel, uh, God with us. And so the majority of the book of Isaiah has this, you know, a font or this uh, subscript of being a prophetic book. But of course, starting in chapter 36, the rubber hits the road. That there's real life that is happening in the midst of prophetic words. You see, in chapter 36, the, the uh, Rabshaki, the, the commander of the entire army of the Assyrian Empire, is now literally on the doorsteps of Jerusalem itself. And Isaiah, having to be the prophet of God, has to now show what it means for prophecy now to become reality. Will God carry out his promises? You see, it's easy being a prophet and, you know, some event that's going to happen 400, 700 years, a thousand years in the future. I'm not going to be around to, to hear it or to experience that. But what happens when it happens now today? When the prophetic events actually take place here and now. This, this is what's happening in the time of Isaiah, in the life of Isaiah itself. Chapter 37, verse 1, it says this. And so it was when King Hezekiah heard it, that he tore his clothes, covered himself with sackcloth, and went into the house of the Lord. Then he sent Eliakim, who was over the household, Shebna the scribe, covered with sackcloth, to Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, the author of this book. And they said to him, Thus says Hezekiah, This day is a day of trouble and rebuke and blasphemy, for the children have come to birth, but there is no strength to bring them forth. It may be that the Lord, your God, will hear the words of the Rebshaki, whom his master, the king of Assyria, 
has sent to reproach the living God and will rebuke the words which the Lord your God has heard. Therefore, lift up your prayer for the remnant that is left. And so, Father, tonight, as we start this amazing section in the book of Isaiah, I ask that you would help us uh, who are maybe going through hard times ourselves, where, where there's enemies literally at the gates, where, where the, there's these powers, there, there's these um, temptations, there, there's these troubles that are going on in our lives, and they seem bigger than us, as if they're going to knock down our gates, as if they're going to trample us and take us away. We might as well just give up and die. And so, Lord, tonight I ask that you would, just as you did 2,700 years ago with Hezekiah, with Isaiah and those that were surrounded by the enemy, that you too would remind us that you protect us even now, that you're there for us even now, that you're bigger than any problems we may have, that you are the sovereign Lord who is in charge and your will will be accomplished, Lord. And we thank you for that. Remind us in our frailty, remind us in, in our, our hard times, remind us in our trials that you are there with us, Lord. And that we can always turn to you and know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you hear us just as you will uh, Hezekiah's prayer too. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. And amen. Well, what is it like, you know, when, when, as we've been learning starting last week in chapter 36, and literally have a person blaspheme the God that you worship? It happens all the time. You know, we just like to ignore it or, or laugh it off. It happens in, in a, the workplace, it happens in school, it happens in our society, it happens on the news, it happens on you know, uh, TV shows, it happens on your phone, it happens on, you know, the media, the social media of the day. What do we do when people blaspheme God? And the challenge is, just like with Isaiah and Hezekiah, the challenge is, what do I do with the blaspheming that is happening around us? You see, the Rabshaki had come, and you can either listen to last week's uh, uh, lesson or read uh, chapter 36, and, and literally what is happening, the Rabshaki, this commander of the army of, of the nation of Assyria, the greatest power at this time, is doing the tactic that he's done at every single nation that he surrounds. He demeans them. He, he, he demeans their gods, he demeans their society, he mocks who they are, and, and in every single way he tries to get them to fall without a single blood drop falling, that they would just surrender because they see this massive army that is surrounding uh, their walls. And so the same thing has happened now with Hezekiah and the city of Jerusalem. 
They, they've surrounded the nation and they've given their list of demands. Look at all the other nations they've fallen. They have surrendered to us. They have been taken and you are next on our list. In verse three, it says, and they said to him, thus says Hezekiah, this day is a day of trouble and rebuke and blasphemy for the children have come to birth, but there is no strength to bring them uh, forth. What happens in the day of trouble? What happens in the day when there is, it seems like, no hope? Where you just want to literally lay down, give up. It happens to many of us. None of us are immune. And the same thing is happening in the time of King Hezekiah. What does a person do in that time? Verse 5. The story continues. So the servants of King Hezekiah came to Isaiah, and Isaiah said to them, Thus you shall say to your master, Thus says the Lord. It starts with not some advice that I have, not, not some, you know, a, a poetic saying, but what is the very first thing out of the mouth of Isaiah, the prophet who wrote this and is living in the same nation, in the same city with those that are also being surrounded, having to deal with the same consequences, the very first words out of his mouth are, thus says the Lord. Not, not what Isaiah says, not what Hezekiah says, not what some learned man says. But thus says the Lord, who's the first words we should listen to? God's. And just like in the New Testament, he says, do not be afraid of the words which you have heard, with which the servants of the king of Assyria have blasphemed me. Surely I will send a spirit upon him and he shall hear a rumor and return to his own land and I will cause him to fall by the sword in his own uh, land. What was the purpose of the reason why the Assyrians have come? N not to just conquer, not, not to just kill, not to just destroy, but to blaspheme to demean the God of Israel, to show that they have been able to conquer every other God, every other idol, every other nation, every other religious system on the, the world at that time, the known world. And they say, oh, the God of the Israelites, he'll be just as easy. And so the Rabchaki blasphemes God and Isaiah reminds Hezekiah that God will stand up for his people. Verse 8, Then the Rabshakeh returned and found the king of Assyria warring against Libna, for he heard that he had departed from Lachish. And the king heard concerning Turhaka, a king of Ethiopia, he has come out to make war with you. And so when he heard it, he sent messengers to Hezekiah, saying, Thus you shall speak to Hezekiah, king of Judah, saying, do not let your God in whom you trust deceive you, saying, 
Jerusalem will not be given into the hand of the kings of Assyria. Look with your eyes at this massive army that is surrounding you. The enemy is always trying to take your eyes off of God and look at the circumstances. Because when we take our eyes off of God and see what is happening on the horizontal, the plane of what is going on in our world, what happens so easily with our faith? What happens so easily with our confidence? The problems become bigger. But when I keep my eyes on God, what happens to the problems? They get smaller, as we'll see with King Hezekiah. There's this amazing word that's going to be repeated seven times in this section. It's this word trust. And in the Hebrew, this word trust literally is the word batak. And it comes from a, a, a meaning of a, a, um, uh, not only trust itself, but understanding where that trust comes from. You see, the trust that you put your faith in depends upon what you put it in. I sit in a chair, and without even looking, you know, probably all of us have come into this room and sat down. Why did you trust the chair that you're sitting in? Because you probably sat in it over and over and over and over. And just like many of us here, we sit in the same place by habit, okay? We, we sit in the same place by habit and we just sit down, right? Whether it's in school, whether it's at work, wherever it may be, in church, we have our, our seat, our place where we sit. And we trust that chair. We, we, we put our, our faith in that chair. We batak that chair. In 2 Kings chapter 18, where the same uh, story, the same narrative is literally repeated word for word, it says this, 2 Kings chapter 18, verse 4 and 5, he removed the high places, broke the sacred pillars, cut down the wooden image, broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days, the children of Israel burned incense to it and called it Nehushtan. He trusted or batocked in the Lord God of Israel so that after him was none like him among all the kings of Judah, nor who were before him. What a great memorial to a king by the name of Hezekiah. What was he known for? Trusting in the Lord. Putting the Lord first. And this is why in 2 Kings chapter 18, and also in 2 Chronicles, and also in Isaiah chapter 36, seven times this word is used, not by Isaiah, not by Hezekiah, but by the Rebshaki who's accusing Isaiah, who's accusing Hezekiah of putting their trust in God. You see, Hezekiah was known not just in Jerusalem, not just in Judah, not just where he lived, but even in the surrounding nations for putting his trust 
in the Lord. Now, putting his batak in the Lord. You see, in Proverbs chapter 28, verse 1, the word batak is used. But it's translated just a little bit differently. It still has the same meaning. It's still the same Hebrew word, but it's translated into the English in a, in a special way. In Proverbs chapter 28, verse 1, it says this, The wicked flee when no one pursues, but the righteous are batak as a lion. And I've, you know, used this illustration many, many times. Those of you that have been, you know, coming uh, over the last uh, year or so or come on Monday nights to the men's group or, or Wednesday mornings, you've heard me give this same illustration. And it, it comes from this verse. It comes from this verse right here. As bold as a lion. You've seen the nature shows, right? Lion roars on the savannah. It's heard for miles and miles, that deep, guttural roar. And what has happened to all those gazelles out there? The elephants and the giraffes, what do they do? Perk up their ears. They run. Why? The lion's hungry. What are those little cubs doing? You've seen the nature shows before. Chewing on the tail and biting his ears and climbing all over him. Same roar, same lion, different response. Why? Because everybody else on the savannah's food. Those lions, those little cubs have put their trust in their dad. They're bold because their dad stands over them. And this is the same exact word that is now being used in 2 Chronicles and 2 Kings and is Isaiah chapters 36 and 37. The same exact word. Batak. Trust. Boldness. Not because of who I am or because of my strong walls or, or my defenses but because of the one that we put our trust in, God himself. And I can stand boldly, why? Because I got a big God behind me. I got a big God who's on my side. I, I got a God that who, as we're going to find out, can send one angel, one angel out of the literally the billions and trillions that he has at his disposal. One angel. To come and save. Verse 11. I love the response of Hezekiah. Look, you've heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all the lands by utterly destroying them. And shall you be delivered? Have the gods of the nations delivered those whom my fathers have destroyed? The Rebshaki is bragging about what they have done. Gozan and Haran and Rezeph and the people of Eden who were in Telassar. Where is the king of Hamath and the king of Erpad and the king of the cities of the Seraphim and the Hena and the Iva and all these cities that we have no clue where they're at, right? 
Now, all these places in the, the Middle East that were literally just a stomping ground for the Assyrian Empire as they literally took over nation after nation after nation after nation. You see, the question that they ask is, where is the gods of the other nations? Where were they to protect those people? And, you know, the Rebchecki is doing this on purpose. The commander of the Assyrian army is doing this on purpose. It is a warfare of words. Getting the people who are defending the walls to be scared. And it's happened in the past. It was a, a, a good tactic for every other nation except for now in Jerusalem. Because what did Hezekiah tell the people that were on the walls to do? Don't even say a word. Don't even answer them. God will stand up uh, for us. It's so easy to look at the time, this narrative. Oh yeah, that happened 2,700 years ago. But does that happen today? Is going to church like every religion you just show up because you got to, you want to appease God, you want to check your box, you, you do your prayers, you, you read your Bible, and then you just go about your day doing whatever you want to please. Uh, the, the list of things that make our religious checklist. We, we bring our shopping list to God and say, I want this, 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 and this, and then we go off and do whatever we want. Rather than having a relationship with God. Rather than understanding, just like in the book of Ezekiel, just like in the book of Hosea, where we're at in the, the men's Bible studies, that, that they understood what it meant to have a relationship with God. Because when religion comes into it, it becomes dead. It's no longer a relationship. It's no longer alive. It just becomes a tradition. Or the next question is, do we make Christianity like every other religion? Do I, do I make just going to church, oh, I got to go to church? And then throughout the rest of the week, you know, we don't talk about it anymore. It's not a part of who we are. It's not a part of who we are in our very being. Do you have a relationship with God that's alive? Or is it dead? Or the third question, do we treat God like any other idol? Whether it's a, a, a Catholic church, whether it's some sort of uh, other religion, maybe, you know, Buddhism or, or some sort of, you know, new age religion, whatever it may be. And we got our little shrines, we got our little idols, we got our little, you know, places where we go to. We go to church, we go to the building, we go to this place. <clears throat> but do you understand that you are the church? That God lives in you. And where you are, God is also. If you have a relationship with God, if your relationship with God is alive, what does that do now wherever you step outside? You can take the message. You can be the light. You can be that salt to a dying uh, world. 
Or how do we show people through our actions that God is alive? And just like King Hezekiah was known for trusting in God, not just in his own nation, but in the surrounding nations that he's being accused of putting his trust, his batak in God, where literally the rubber hits the road, where reality meets the prophetic word, where, you know, real life meets the Bible. My faith is now being tested. What will I do in the very next step? Will I trust God in this situation? Will, will I put my trust, my boldness in God? Will I put my batak in uh, God? You see, just like I showed last week, there's this map. And, and it's easy for us to, you know, be disassociated with it because we live halfway around the world. But to understand the reality of what is going on. Where's Judah in the midst of that huge, massive Assyrian empire? Just that little teardrop. Just that little oval. That's it. And you can imagine Hezekiah and Isaiah and the people that are literally defending their homeland, literally surrounded by this massive world power. The Assyrian empire on their doorsteps watching all these weird-named nations around them fall. And who's next on the Assyrian army's list? Who's the last holdout? Judah. Hezekiah. The Israelites. What does Hezekiah do? What would you do? Would you just surrender, lay down, give up? It's easy to do. It's easy to do. But what does Hezekiah do? Verse 14. And Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it. Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord and spread it before the Lord. Then Hezekiah prayed to the Lord, saying, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, the one who dwells between the cherubim, you are God, you alone of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. What's the very first thing that Hezekiah does with that letter? He reads it and lays it out before God. He brings his troubles to God first. He brings the problems to God. Have you ever received a letter of threat or a letter of termination or a letter of debt or a letter of something that's troubling to you? What's the first thing you do with that letter? Go to your checkbook. Oh, I don't have enough money. Go to a friend. Go to a counselor, go to a, you know, financial person, a tax person, or, or someone that knows how to, you know, solve these problems. What's the, who's the first person you go to? It determines the importance of that person, by the way. It determines your trust. It determines your boldness, your batak. 
What does Hezekiah do? And, and by the way, this isn't just some financial letter. This isn't just some, you know, termination letter. This, this, this isn't just, you know, I'm going to lose my house or, or uh, you know, someone has, you know, died in my family or something like that. So some, something that, yes, it can be devastating in our lives, 100%. You, you don't, you don't uh, uh, demean it in any way. It, all those things are important. But can you imagine literally your city is about being ready to be overrun by the Assyrian Empire and understanding that they are not going to be nice when they walk through those gates. Just like the nation of Israel that was in the north, capital Samaria, they literally come with fish hooks, meat hooks, and put them in the cheeks of the prisoners and carry them away, dragging them naked, destroying who they are as a people. And Hezekiah knows what's going to happen if the enemy gets through the gates. And what does he do with that letter? He lays it before God. He lays it before God. Knowing that his relationship with God is real and alive. And he serves a powerful God who didn't just make that little stretch of land that is being shown on the map, that, that little stretch of land that, yeah, yes, it was the known world at that time, and yes, the Assyrian Empire was the power of the day, but the one who made the entire world, the unknown parts of the world that weren't even discovered at this time, to understand that God is the one who made everything. In fact, what does he say in verse 17? Incline your ear, O Lord, to hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. Hear all the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to reproach the living God. Do you serve a living God? Or do you serve a, you know, God of convenience or, or God who, who's just in one place or, or an idol? which so many times we do. And of course, America does have idols. We just put them in our living rooms. We just stare at them. We hold them in our hands. And when we lose those things, what happens to our world? It literally falls apart, right? But to understand that you serve a living God who transcends all of our problems, and just like Hezekiah, we need to take our eyes off our problems, put them on the living God. Verse 18, truly, Lord, the king of Assyria have laid waste all the nations in their lands. Yes, this is real. Yes, this is dangerous. Yes, they have destroyed all the other nations. They've cast their God, small g, into the fire. For they were not gods, but the works of men's hands wood and stone. Therefore, they destroyed them. Their gods are just temporary. Their gods are man-made. Who's the God that you serve? Does he transcend time and space? Has he created anything and everything? Or has he created himself in maybe your own imagination? Or, you know, by your own hands? Or by someone else's hands? Who is your God? 
Is he temporary or is he eternal? Is he man-made or is he omnipotent? Is he thought of by you or is he omniscient? The one who in all of his creativity created everything that is alive. Verse 20, now therefore, Lord, our God, save us from his hand. That all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you are the Lord, you alone. What is the ultimate desire of Hezekiah himself? Not that his glory would be known, not that his nation would be known, but whom would be known by the saving of Jerusalem? The one who created Jerusalem. The one that chose Jerusalem. The one who is the God unique to Jerusalem itself at this time. The one who loves Jerusalem. The one who loves his people. Verse 21, then Isaiah, the son of Amaz, sent to Hezekiah saying, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, because you have prayed to me against Sennacherib, king of Assyria, this is the word which the Lord has spoken concerning him. So now taking this narrative, this real life situation, this problem, uh, the, this trial that's happening within the city of Jerusalem and now going directly into a prophetic word. You see, this part isn't seen in the other two instances where we see this story. And by the way, this is the second uh, story in the Bible that is repeated three times. The other time, you know, of course, you guys know the story of, of God leading the people out of Egypt. That, that's the number one most repeated story in the Old Testament and also even in the New Testament itself. The, the story of how God saved the people of Israel and brought them out of Egypt. But this story here is repeated three times also. This story is repeated on purpose in 2 Kings, 2 Chronicles, and now in Isaiah because of the power of what is about to happen. You see, Isaiah, he says this, the virgin, the daughter of Zion, has despised you, laughed you to scorn. The daughter of Jerusalem has shaken her head behind your back. Whom have you reproached and blasphemed? Against whom have you raised your voice and lifted up your eyes on high? Against the Holy One of Israel. Who are they actually attacking? Not just some brick walls. And not just some, you know, people that were Jews. Who were the Assyrians actually attacking? The Holy One of Israel. Verse 24, by your servants you have reproached the Lord and said, by the multitude of my chariots I have come up to the height of the mountains, to the limits of Lebanon I will cut down its tall cedars and its choice cypress trees. I will enter its farthest height to its fruitful forest. I have dug and drunk water and with the soles of my feet I have dried up all the brooks of defense, this poetic way of saying that literally Assyria has defeated every other nation, but now putting it into a, a poetic form, a prophetic uh, way. Isaiah 
coming up with this amazing way of showing how the Assyrians have literally stomped with the soles of their feet from one nation to another, to another, to another, and are now on the doorsteps, the gates of Jerusalem itself. Did you not hear long ago how I made it from ancient times that I formed it and now I have brought it to pass that you should be for crushing fortified cities into heaps of ruins. Therefore their inheritance or inhabitants had little power. They were dismayed and confounded. They were as the grass of the field, the green herb as the grass of the housetops, the green blighted before it is grow, grow, grown the grain blighted before it was grown, but I know your dwelling place. You're going out and you're coming in in your rage against me. Who do the Assyrians actually hate? Who are they actually attacking? When people blaspheme God, who are they actually offending? What do you do, just like I asked at the very beginning, when people blaspheme God? Because does it happen today? All the time. On the media, TV, everywhere we look. It just becomes a, a part of who people are. It's just the thing to say. Oh my. Taking the name of Jesus Christ in vain. Blank damn it. Blank damn it. All the time. Over and over and over again. Just becomes who they are. What do you do when people blaspheme God? What does Hezekiah do? What does Isaiah do? We'll get the answer. Verse 29 because your rage against me and your tumult have come up to my ears. Therefore, I will put my hook in your nose and my bridle in your lips. And I will turn you back by the way which you came. Remember, this was the tactic of the Assyrians. They would go from place to place and just like they did in, into the nation of Israel itself. And you can read these things in Hosea and the book of Amos uh, as well. Now, literally, they would come in with those implements of torture and, and pierce the cheeks and lead people away like cattle. You know, lead people away with fish hooks. And when they would run out of fish hooks, they would put meat hooks into their cheeks. And can you imagine that piercing? You know, not just a, a piercing in the ears or a, a piercing in some part of your body that you choose to have pierced. But to be pierced in a place where literally you feel it every single time that you eat. But where, where the saliva will literally be dripping out the side of your cheek because it would be pierced. And then even after that fish hook or that meat hook was taken out, to have that hole as a reminder in the side of your face or in your nose or in a part of your body that you were literally being dragged by. This was the humiliation. And now, what is God saying to the people of Assyria now? 
I'm going to lead you away. I'm going to lead you. And if you've you read ahead, you know what's going to happen. And I know we're not going to find out the answer tonight. It's just going to be the perfect segue in the next week. Thank God, because you'll remember and you'll read it for next week. What does it say? Verse 30, this shall be a sign to you. You shall eat this year such as grows of itself and the second year which springs from the same. Also in the third year, sow and reap, plant vineyards and eat fruit of them. And the remnant who have escaped of the house of Judah shall again take root downward and bear fruit upward. Let your fruit be seen. You see, when people try to blaspheme, what are they doing? They're trying to destroy. They, oh, they may not think it, you know, uh, literally, but it's subconscious, it's unconscious what they're doing. They're trying to destroy your walk with God. They're trying to demean the God that you worship. They're trying to destroy your fruit. By the way, what is the fruit of the Holy Spirit? What is the fruit of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control against which there is no law. There's nine of them. I know I only said seven of them. You can look it up yourself. But you understand what happens when people blaspheme. What happens to your joy? What happens to your love? What happens to your peace? What happens to your patience? Is it harmed? Is it blighted? Is it taken away? What do you do when people blaspheme God? For out of Jerusalem shall go a remnant, and those who escape from Mount Zion, the zeal of the Lord of hosts, will do this. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, he shall not come into this city, nor shoot an arrow. That means one arrow. Nor come before it with a shield, nor build a siege mound against it. By the way that he came, by the same he shall return. He shall not come into this city, says the Lord. For I will defend this city to save it. For my own sake, and for my servant David's sake. What do you do when people blaspheme the Lord? And the easiest thing that you can do is praise God. When they say, oh my, or blank, damn it, or, or use the Lord's name in vain, what can you do? You can say, praise the Lord. I love God. Can you be that bold? Can you be that trusting in your God who is big behind you? And in many ways, you know, hopefully this will open up a conversation for you, to those around you. Because in every single way, in every part of our lives, the temptation is always there to give in to the enemy, to open up the gates and let them lead you away captive. I'm not going to read verse 36. You get to read verse 36. Go home. See what happens. Read, read the rest of chapter 37. Read chapter 38 and 39. It is absolutely amazing. Can God do the same today? In our, in our little battles, where, where 
Yes, it may feel overwhelming in the moment, but, you know, in many cases, it's just your pride. It's just trying to fit in. It's just trying to go along with the crowd, to be like everybody else, the peer pressure of the day. And I guarantee you, I guarantee you, your God is bigger than them. And if you put your trust, your boldness in the God of the entire universe, he will make you strong even in those situations of blaspheming. He will be the one that gives you the strength. He will be the one that gives you the words to say. Read the rest of the chapter. It's absolutely uh, amazing. And so, Father, tonight I thank you so much for the privilege of reading through an, an amazing portion of the scriptures that, that we know is true. And that, that as we're going to see next week, the, the, the proof is literally there in the midst of uh, the situation where, where the, these events that are taking place, these, these factual historical events, and just to see the amazing way that you have your hand in all of history. Because it always tells your story. It always tells his story. It always tells the story of uh, how God is working throughout uh, the past and the present and the future. And so, Lord, we ask that you show yourself strong in our lives now. And I know that, you know... Every single one of us in this room go through times where, where we too can face the peer pressures of the day, where it's easier to give in than to stand strong. It's easier to collapse and, and just uh, be lethargic and, and give up than to stand up for what is right. And so Lord, strengthen us today. Help us to see you our God, the Lion of Judah, the powerful one, the one who is the creator of all on our side to strengthen us, to give us boldness in these situations in our lives. Lord, I ask you bless these, my friends and my family tonight. Use us for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. Thank you for coming tonight. God bless you.